The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that chapter which we read at the beginning, in the book of Job, chapter 28. And we are going to look in particular at the two questions asked and the answer given in verses 12, 20, and 28. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Whence then cometh wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? And unto men he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now, it is probably true to say that this book of Job is one of the oldest books in the world. Job was a man who lived at the very dawn of history, and the record which we have here, therefore, is one of the earliest records that is known to men. And that is what makes this book such an interesting one and such a profound one. It belongs to the so-called wisdom literature of the Bible. Now, the whole of the Bible is a book of wisdom. The Bible is a book which is concerned about life. It's a very practical book. That's why there's so much history in it. It must never be regarded as something abstract, theoretical, academic. The Bible is the manual of the soul. It's the handbook of life. And everywhere, always, it is to be found dealing with life. Now, here I say we come to look at one of the oldest of the books that's in this old book. And we shall find that it is full of instruction and full of light for us. It helps us, as I want to try to show you, that... Uh, it is always contemporary, that though it's very old, it's always up to date. Now, this chapter that we are looking at is one of the crucial chapters, one of the most important chapters in the whole book. The book has got a theme, as you know, it's got a thesis. It's the great problem of suffering. Job, this man of God, couldn't understand why... Uh, his circumstances had taken such a turn and why he found himself in this terrible condition. His sons and daughters killed, much of his goods had been destroyed, and he himself suffering from a most agonizing, terrible condition of his skin. And his friends come along, you remember, to talk to him, to try to help him, but make things much worse. And they're all together trying to understand this thing which is happening to Job. Well, now, in this chapter, this great theme is really dealt with in a very profound manner, and we are given the answer not only to Job's particular problem, but to a much larger and to a much bigger problem. Very well, let's look at it together. Now, as we read the chapter, you all must have been struck by two things that enter it. There are many other things, but there are two that stand out on the very surface. The first is, the remarkable knowledge that people possessed in those days. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they find it. Find it. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. 
Now, this was written many, many, many centuries ago. But they seemed to know quite a good deal then, didn't they? Well, I'm only referring to this as we pass along, because uh, I suppose the chiefest characteristic of the modern man is, is his pride in his knowledge. And not merely his pride in his knowledge, but the patronizing way in which he tends to look back upon everybody who's ever lived in this world before this century. Ignoramuses knew nothing. Now, this is one of the modern man's troubles. It's why his world is as it is. He's so proud of his knowledge and so confident in it and uh, tends to think, as I say, that uh, nobody, as it were, had ever really lived until this present century. Of course, we've got vast knowledge. I'm in agreement. We all know that. But uh, let's not be foolish. Let's not uh, imagine that uh, there was no knowledge until we came on the scene. You know, men and women knew a great deal many, many long centuries ago. They knew a good deal about iron and brass and gold and rubies and diamonds. There's a sort of contemporary ring about this chapter, isn't there? Well, that's not my theme tonight, but it's something worth noting in passing. It doesn't do us much harm to be humbled now and again, does it? We are not quite as wonderful as we sometimes tend to think. Let's not lose our heads, my friends, because we've sent a man up into outer space. People have known a great deal in past ages. But the second thing is the thing to which I want to call your attention tonight. And that is that the real problem confronting mankind is always the same. Oh, I know the world has changed a great deal since the time of Job. We needn't waste our time in talking about that, need we? Job had never heard of Major Gagarin, never heard of him. But you know, the problem in the day of Job was the greatest problem of today. The same problem. Now this is something which is, of course, quite basic and fundamental. We will persist in thinking that we are different and that our problems are so different. Haven't you noticed the terminology, how we give ourselves away in our phrases and in our cliches? The problem of the 20th century. The problem of the post-war world. The problem of this scientific age. Isn't that it? That's how we like to talk about our problems. And the impression which we are giving, of course, the whole time, and we, we do so because we believe it, is that our problem is of a type and of a kind that the human race has never known before. And because our problem we think is new, well, we must have a new solution. We must have a new answer. That's why people are no longer interested in Christianity. That's why they wouldn't dream of coming like this tonight, doing what you are doing and reading this book. Impossible. How can that conceivably help us? It's out of date. It isn't contemporary. It doesn't know the modern problem. Well, you see, I'm taking you back to this oldest book and to this particular chapter because its central message is this, that the problem of the time of Job is our major problem today. There's no change whatsoever. The problem of man is identical with what it has always been. Now then, let me put this in its truly modern setting and context. Why is the world as it is tonight? Why is there tension? Why is there strain? 
Why is there unhappiness? Why are things as they are between the nations? Why this division and why this preparation for war and the piling up and the massing of these horrible instruments of torture? What's the matter? Why are our papers, even in this country, so full of these problems? You can't pick up a paper without reading about a murder or a theft or a robbery or a divorce or a separation or some little children being neglected by selfish parents and the children themselves lawless, disobedient, juvenile delinquency, impossible to maintain any kind of discipline in the schools and so on. What's the matter? Restless young people. What's the matter with the world? Why are things like this? Now, that's the question, isn't it? Now, it's because we've got the answer to that question uh, here in this 28th chapter of the book of Job that I'm calling your attention to it. You know, the complete answer is given here. Now, there's nothing new about this problem. Man has always been like that, always. It has its little variations. Sometimes this problem is bigger than it was a century ago, but then uh, there's something which reverses that. Basically, fundamentally, the world has always been a difficult place. Life has always been difficult. There has been no change at all. And the problem of problems is the problem that is posed, considered, and answered in this chapter. Now then, let's analyze it together. Why are things, I say, as they are? Why is life as it is this evening? Well, here's the first answer. That man doesn't recognize the difference between wisdom and knowledge. That man, if you like, is not aware of the difference between understanding and the possession of information. Now, that, that is really the whole thing. There is your problem in a nutshell. The difference between learning and wisdom. Knowledge and understanding. Now, that's the theme, as you've noticed, in this great chapter. Now, let, let's have a look at this. Because this, I say, in the last analysis, really does give us the full explanation of the state of our world tonight. That's the whole thing. That's the whole trouble. Now, then, let's look at it like this. Look at these two things. On the one hand, learning, knowledge, information. Now, what is this? Well, we all ought to know about this. This has been the thing that has charmed and fascinated men, especially during the last hundred years. It is our proud boast, as I say, that the advances we've made in knowledge in almost every realm and department have been phenomenal. And, of course, they have. I'm not here to dispute facts. It's no part of the preaching of the gospel to dispute or to deny facts. And it is a sheer fact that the advance and increase in knowledge in the last hundred years has been quite unmatched and unparalleled. And the modern man is particularly proud of that, as I say. Now, it's interesting just to look for a moment into the history of all this. It really began, you know, at what's called the Renaissance. Towards the end of the 15th century and thereabouts, proceeding to the 16th century, the Renaissance, the revival of learning, there had been a dark era in the history of the world, the Middle Ages, with much darkness. And life, you know, had been more or less stagnant for many, many centuries. But now, things began to move. Men began questing. Columbus, 
discovered America. Now that was a shattering thing to do. It was a revolutionary thing. It opened up new horizons, discovered a new world, discovered that the world was round after all. Now here, you see, men began, as he thought, to shake off the shackles of the past. He lost his blinkers, and he began to go out and to search after knowledge. Now this is the great quest then for learning and for knowledge. And you're familiar with the story. It happened in many, many realms. They rediscovered again the great wisdom and philosophy of Greece and the great literature, the great drama. Oh, this was wonderful. They were rediscovering knowledge. But then they began to search and to examine. Anatomy began to develop, the knowledge even of the human frame. How little men knew about their own bodies before this time. Physiology began soon afterwards. A study of the human frame, getting to know something about the heart and the lungs and all these things. People used to believe in odd spirits before. But now they really began to understand the working of men's own constitution. Muscles, nerves, heart, and all the various functions. Wonderful. But it went on all along the line. The discoveries in so-called pure science were quite remarkable and astonishing. Telescopes discovered... Therefore, they were able to understand and find out things about the planets and all these things and the moon and its function and the sun and how it was that the earth went round the sun and not vice versa and so on. Now, all this, you see, is a part of this great story with which we are all so familiar. And then the phenomenal inventions that have resulted from all this. The discovery of how to harness the power of steam Steam engine, traveling and locomotion, revolutionized. Then, of course, the internal combustion engine, still more marvelous. Now rockets, sending a man up out of the reach of gravity and all the rest of it. Well, of course, this is all simply tremendous. This is knowledge. We've acquired information. And then, of course, the quite remarkable discoveries in the realm of the prevention of diseases, the inoculation the treatment of diseases, these so-called miracle, marvel, drugs of this century and so on. Well, here it is, you see. And the modern man looks at all this and he says, isn't it wonderful how ignorant our forefathers were? Or how small their world was, how confined it was. You see, they didn't know these things. They were, they were ignorant of it all. And here he is, the modern man. He looks at all he's, he knows and all he's discovered. And this vast knowledge and information that he possesses. And he tends to think, this is the point, that this is everything. That this is the answer. This is the thing that is desired. This is the thing that is really required. And as I say, he feels that it is. And that he has therefore arrived, he's superior to all that have gone before him. And that therefore, with all this, He's got possibilities that they didn't have. He's capable of doing things they couldn't do. And he cannot but feel, he's trying to persuade himself, that with all this he's going on now to solve the remaining problems and all is soon going to be well. Now then, it's just here, you see, we need to ask our questions. What is it that modern man has really got? And the answer is he's got knowledge. He's got information. He's got encyclopedias. He's got dossiers. He's got books of facts. Such as men never knew. It's happening. 
developing and advancing every year. A man who was studying for a degree in any department 40 years ago, he looks at a modern textbook and he feels very glad that he got qualified then and he didn't have to try the examinations. Now, this is happening, as you know, all along the line. The knowledge, the information. Your libraries are having to be expanded. You've got to have microfilms now. There are so many books that you can't contain them all. And man says, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? But is it? Is it? What's it led to? What's it really done to man himself? What has it done to the world? Now, isn't this the question we ought to be asking? And thank God some people are beginning to ask it. Where's all this leading us? What's all this really giving us? Are we superior as men to our forefathers? In other words, we are beginning to realize that there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Information understanding. You see, all this knowledge that we've gathered and garnered, what, what, what's it producing? Well, it's producing a world of terrible tension. It's making people ask, some of the scientists are asking, how much longer are we going to live? Have we got another ten years? Is some fool going to press a button, let off a bomb or something? Is it going to be the end? Now, that's not a very wonderful world to live in, is it? Now, you see, in the light of all this knowledge and information, we've got now to face the facts and say, what's it done? What's it led to? What does it achieve? And you look out upon the present scene and you discover it to be what I described at the beginning. Very well, then, what is the trouble? Oh, the trouble is, you see, that while man has all this knowledge and information, what he lacks is wisdom, understanding, He's done this, that, and the other, but where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Whence then cometh wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? That's the question. Well, says somebody, what is the difference between the two? What is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Information, awareness of facts, and understanding. And the answer is surely something like this, isn't it? This is what wisdom means. Wisdom is the ability to use and to harness the knowledge of facts which you've arrived at in such a way and in such a manner as to promote man's best and highest interests. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the capacity and the power to know what to do with your facts and with your knowledge and information. To use them and not abuse them. To master them instead of being mastered by them. That's wisdom. It's very difficult to define wisdom. There's all the difference in the world between a very knowledgeable man and a wise man. I believe it's true to say, the members of the legal profession present will forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm prepared to debate it with them. There's been many a great advocate who's been utterly hopeless as a judge. That's a part of the difference. A man may have great knowledge of the law, but he may be very bad at applying it and using it. That's the kind of distinction. A man who has vast information is not always the best man from whom to seek advice. The two things are very different. Now then, what, but what does it mean in this more particular sense? Well, it means something like this. Wisdom and understanding mean, and you see, there it is, the word understanding really is the key. It is the difference between knowing about facts and knowing their significance. 
really understanding. Now the tragedy of the modern man is he knows many things about himself and about life and living, but he doesn't understand. What doesn't he understand? Well, he doesn't understand himself. He's almost turning himself into a machine. All his thinking is in terms of this knowledge and information and all the gadgets and all the things that make life easy and pleasant and uh, so on. But he doesn't realize the truth about himself. Man, in a way, has never had a, a lower view of himself as judged by biblical standards than he has today. You know, a man is not just an animal who's in this world to eat or to drink or to indulge his sex. That's not man. But the modern man tends to think of himself like that. What's the value of all this uh, marvelous knowledge we've acquired and these brilliant inventions? Well, you can now get from London to New York in five hours or something. That's what it gives me. Well, that's marvelous. I can get now from London to New York in five hours. It used to take three months and more, uh, even a couple of hundred of years ago. Uh, I can get from London to Glasgow in an hour and a half. And uh, by train, uh, it takes seven, eight hours and so on. Well, this is marvelous, says the modern man. But uh, is that really men? Is men just a creature who flits from here to there? Does life really just consist in getting from one place to another in a record time and doing it in much less time than somebody else? Is that, is that life? Is that men? But isn't that how we are tending to think? Wonderful food we've got. Wonderful entertainments we have. Marvelous gadgets. Press buttons. People used to have to sweat before. You press a button and it's done. You sit down and you watch it all. And man seems to think that uh, the ultimate for men... Utopia is the condition in which a man does nothing. And everything's done for him. And he just sits back and he enjoys himself. But my dear friends, is that man? You see, if you're content with knowledge and information, that'll be the end of your argument. But that isn't wisdom. Wisdom says, what is man? What is he? What is man as a being? What's he doing in this world? What is life? Now, this is, these are the questions that wisdom puts. Wisdom says, well, I don't care how long it takes me to get from London to New York. What is of concern to me is this. How do I live when I'm in London or New York? What sort of a man am I? Not how quickly can I be carried in some sort of vehicle. Why should I be carried at all? What do I do when I get anywhere? What's life about? What am I here for? What's it all mean? What's it all leading to? And how can I live in a manner that I can look at myself in the mirror at night without feeling... I'm a fool and a cad. How can I put my head down on the pillow and rest in peace, not be afraid that I'm going to die suddenly? How can I look into the face of death and not have a fear? How can I look into an unknown eternity and not be filled with terror and alarm? These are the questions. These are the questions that wisdom puts. You can have a great information, but you can be very unhappy. Wisdom looks for peace. Peace of mind, peace of heart, the quiet mind. Oh, the poor modern man, the slave of his own discoveries and inventions, how restless he is, poor fellow. To spend a night at term alone and to think he'd regard as the height of boredom, always must be going out somewhere, rushing after this or that, turning this on, looking at that. 
He doesn't know what it is to be at peace with himself. He doesn't know what it is to have a quiet mind, a contented heart, contentment, joy, satisfaction. These are the things that matter in life, says wisdom. But not only that. Wisdom is that which enables you to understand something of what is happening in this world and all its contingencies and eventualities when they meet the wise men. They don't take him by surprise. You see, if you haven't got wisdom, if you just got knowledge and information and something happens, you don't know where you are, you don't know what to do. But the wise man, he's pondered it all. He's been thinking. And he's got a, a view of life. He's got an understanding. So that when untoward events take place, he's not completely knocked off his balance. No, no. He says, we're living in a world like that. It's always been like that. It always will be like that. He's a man who's read, he's thought, he's meditated and he's pondered. So he's not upset. He's got a balance because he's got a balanced view of life. And thus he's enjoying his peace of conscience and thus he's ready for death and everything that lies beyond it. Well, now then, here is the point that is made, you see. There is an eternity of difference between knowledge and wisdom, between mere information, knowledge of facts, and true understanding. And the tragedy of the world tonight is that men don't know this difference. They're mad on knowledge. They have no wisdom. This book of Job has already put this point, uh, puts, uh, puts this point rather later on in chapter 33 when the man Elihu begins to speak. He makes a very profound remark. He says, great men are not always wise. You can be a great man in this world, but not wise. You can be a man of great information, a man of great gifts. You can have wonderful faculties. You may be a great speaker. You may be a great artist, a great scientist. But great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. It's an extraordinary thing, says this man. But that's what I've discovered. And it is equally true tonight. Very well, then. Knowledge is something that may very well enable a man to govern everybody and everything but himself. There are men of vast information who are tragic failures in their own personal lives. There are men who have great knowledge of the law and can give wonderful judgments. But there have been many such who couldn't control their own thirst and their own lusts and passions. There are men of great information in the realm of medicine. They can advise people almost on anything. But there have been some of them in my own personal knowledge who have been tragedies in their own personal relationships and in their own married lives. Great men are not always wise. To have vast knowledge and information does not of necessity lead to wisdom. So, my friend, the question for you to face is this. Not how much knowledge do you possess, how much wisdom have you got? Not so much what can you do with these things outside yourself, how do you manage yourself? You know, there's a profound word about this in the book of Proverbs. It says, He that controlleth his spirit is greater than he that taketh a city. In other words, it's a picture, you see, of a great general. He can take a city. He's a wonderful man at strategy and tactics. And he knows how to conquer great generals on the other side. He can take a city. Yes, says the book of Proverbs, but you know, if that man can't control himself and his own temper... He is finally a failure and may well end in disaster. Alexander the Great died at a very early age. And according to the books, 
He died of a mixture of drinking too much and venereal disease. He that controlleth his spirit is greater than he that taketh a city. Alexander the Great, the world conqueror, didn't have much wisdom. And he ended in defeat. Well, there is the first thing. The modern man doesn't know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. But let me hurry on. He doesn't realize the priceless value of wisdom either. This follows, of course, from the first. Here it's put in a very graphic form. Here is men searching for gold, searching for iron. He'll search for diamonds, rubies, precious metals. He's very interested in these things. And you, you notice the way, in this wonderful way in which we are told about his great skill and his ingenuity as he does so. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. It's man doing this. And then he goes on describing the wonderful achievements of man and his amazing ingenuity and his wonderful industry. He setteth an end to darkness. He goes into caverns. You see, you've got a sinker shaft to get at these things. He's discovered that it's there in the bowels of the earth. Now, but everything's dark there. Well, he sinks down a shaft and he takes light. He setteth an end to darkness and searcheth out all perfection, the stones of darkness and the shadow of death. But he doesn't stop at that. The flood breaketh out from the inhabitant, even the waters forgotten of the foot there, dried up there, gone away from men. As for the earth, out of it cometh bread, and under it is turned up as if it were fire. The stones are the place of sapphires, and it hath dust of gold. Then listen. This is, he says, what man has done. There is a path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. The lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed by it. But man gets there. The wild beasts, and they're very sure-footed, they can get to most places. They've never been there. But man putteth forth his hand upon the rock. He overturneth the mountains by the roots. Haven't you seen him doing it? Now, this is not bulldozers. They haven't got them then, but they've got their way of doing it. You see, in the same way as they've got the power to build the pyramids in Egypt and the Sphinx and so on, these men, they've got it. They could turn a mountain upside down. He overturneth the mountains by the roots. You know, these people really did know a thing or two, didn't they? I hope I'm reducing your pride in the 20th century men a little bit if I'm doing nothing else tonight. These men could turn mountains upside down. He cutteth out the rivers among the rocks. Aqueducts, they called them, and they could do it. And his eye seeth every precious thing. Listen to this. Look at the risks he takes. You see, he says, gold, oh, gold, it's so precious. I must get it. Pearls, we must get them. So he bindeth the floods from overflowing. You see, as you delve into the bowels of the earth, water keeps pouring down, and you'll very soon be drowned if you don't do something about it. So now, he sets up a sort of barricade. He sets up a kind of obstacle to the overspreading of the waters. Then he gets a drainage system. He bindeth the floods from overflowing, and the thing that is hid bringeth he forth to light. Now, that's a very graphic and wonderfully poetic description, isn't it, of engineering and of mine. And man does all this. He risks his life. He risks being drowned. He risks the fall of rocks upon him and being crushed as he's down in the mines. But he says it's worth it. There's gold down there and even the gold dust is valuable. And there are rubies there. There are diamonds. Why, he says, I'll risk anything for that. Man believes in that kind of riches. And so he goes down. He displays this extraordinary ingenuity, this cleverness, this brilliance. He can harness everything, hold back everything that's against him. And he gets at his treasure. 
And so he tells us of the value and the significance that he attaches to these precious metals that are in the bowels of the earth. But here's the question, isn't it? Does it do the same with respect to wisdom? Does he do the same with respect to understanding? Oh, yes, he's marvelous. He'll build his rockets. A man will risk his life and go up in it. Major Gagarin, Lieutenant Shepard, marvelous, risking their lives. Yes, as these men risk their lives with the floods down in the depths of the shaft. They'll risk their lives. Why? Well, we'll get to know something about Venus and about the moon and about Mars. And we'll be able to travel still more quickly. And then we'll be able to get our television much more perfectly. Because then it'll be hit up there and hit back again. It's going to be marvelous. It's worth doing. We'll risk his life. Up he goes in his capsule. Wonderful. And the whole world holds up its hands in astonishment and in amazement. But do you see the same interest in wisdom? Do you see the same concern about understanding? Do you see the same readiness to give mind and heart and money and toil and sweat and research to living a clean and a decent life, to being a good husband or a good wife, to giving your little children a chance in life instead of breaking their little hearts because of your selfish lusts and living with one another as we ought to live in peace and amity and concord. Oh, no, no. You see, the world hasn't changed. Men then would give everything for these riches, the knowledge that they want, which will give them the things they're interested in. Why don't they do the same with regard to wisdom? Why don't they do the same with regard to understanding? They'll delve into the bowels of the earth to get gold. They'll go up in rockets into the outer space in order just to discover some further facts. Why won't they read this book which tells them all about wisdom? Why won't they study this word of God that tells a man how to live and how to die and how to enjoy eternity? Why not? There, you see, is the trouble. Man displays that he doesn't realize the value of this. But the value of this, my dear friend, as this man puts it, is this. The price of this is above rubies. Talk to me about gold and about brass and about iron and about your diamonds and your rubies. I agree, they're wonderful, they're very precious. But you know, it's a very artificial value. They're precious because there are not many of them. That's about all it comes to. It's just a sort of carbon in the end, you know. But there isn't much of it. And therefore we say, oh, how precious, how valuable. I've got it and somebody else hasn't got it. And we rave on it and we'll risk everything. But the price of this is above rubies. Why? Well, this enables you to do something that rubies can't make you do. To be wealthy doesn't mean that you're wise. To be wealthy doesn't mean even that you're happy. Did you read of that poor millionaire this last week, I think it was? He's the richest man in the world, I read, but I read that he had confessed in an interview that he was really very disturbed about the fact that he'd made a failure of his five marriages. That man's beginning to think all honor to him. He's quite right. He said he'd trade all his wealth. If he could only succeed in having a happy marriage, that man's beginning to get wisdom. What's the value of all his wealth to him? If he doesn't know the simple, clean, glorious joy 
of a happy married life and bringing up children. Poor rich men. The little man living in his cottage with his wife and his little children knows something that he doesn't know. He's got something that is beyond the price of rubies. All the gold of the world isn't equal to this. No, no, my dear friend, but not only that. This, what else does it give you? Well, it not only gives you real life in this world, but it prepares you for the next. Well, what's the matter with men? Doesn't he see that that next world is getting very near to him at the present time? Your information and your knowledge is more than likely to blow up your world. Well, then you ought to be considering, where am I going? What about the next world? Diamonds don't answer the question. Gold doesn't answer the question. Rubies don't answer the question. Mars doesn't answer the question. This and this alone answers the question. That's why this is above the price of rubies in value. You know, to possess the rubies of all the world won't help you on your deathbed. It won't help you at all to die. But wisdom, it will. It will give you the answer. You'll go through the river of death triumphant and glorious. You'll know where you're going. Of course, he's right. For the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia shall not equal it. Neither shall it be valued with pure gold. Oh, the world is as it is tonight because the modern man doesn't know the value of wisdom. He's raving about things that are finally useless and he is rejecting with scorn and with sarcasm the wisdom that is above rubies in value. But come, I've got a third charge to bring against him. The world is as it is. Because the modern man doesn't realize, even when he's made to think about this wisdom, that he can never attain it in and of himself. You see, sometimes he's forced to think about it, like the men I've just been quoting. And sometimes when a war comes, everybody's made to think of it. Wisdom. Or a death. Or an illness. I've known many a man who started thinking truly about wisdom for the first time in his life when he gets his first attack of coronary thrombosis. I've known many a man who really had never thought about life and about true living until that first attack and there on his back in bed he began to say, what's it all about? What am I doing here? How am I spending my time? What's it all leading to? He began to consider wisdom. Yes, but you see, the question now is, how do you approach it? How do you think about it? And here man goes wrong again. Because according to this teaching in this chapter, he first of all tries to understand things that he's not meant to understand and that he can never understand. Here it is, you see. God has spoken. God has made his decrees. Then did he see it and declare it. He prepared it, yea, and searched it out. Unto men, he said. Now there's the division. The moment man does begin to think, he goes wrong immediately by trying to think, I say, about things that he'll never understand. He now tries to understand God. That's what Job and his friends were doing. That's the theme of the book. They were saying, well now, why does God behave like this to us? Why does God do this? But that's a question you're not meant to understand. If you think you can understand the mind of God, well, you're already hopeless. You never will. God is everlasting and eternal. He's infinite and he's absolute. 
But men will, you know, you say, I want to know. I, I want to know this. If God's a God of love, why do you allow war? If God's a God of love, why are there spastics? If God, I want to understand. Here's a little pygmy man, and he wants to understand the mind of the eternal God. He wants to understand God's governance of this world. He wants to understand God's ways in every respect. And he never will. He's tackling the wrong problem. Haven't you noticed how we all tend to do that? Man, instead of trying to think about himself and to understand himself, always starts with God and tries to understand God. Start with yourself, my friend, before you try to pit your mind against God's ways. Tell me about your own ways. Why do you keep on doing that thing that gets you down and makes you feel ashamed afterwards? Answer me that first. When you can tell me why you behave as you do and live as you do, then, but not until then, will you be entitled to try to understand the ways of God. No, no, you're not meant to. There's an answer to all that in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. We are not meant to understand certain things. They're beyond us. Our minds are too small, and they're sinful to boot, and we cannot understand we are only meant to understand the things that are revealed. But man, in his pride of knowledge and in his arrogance, says he's going to encompass God himself. He sent a man into outer space. Why shouldn't he examine God with a microscope, therefore? Fool that he is. He'll soon learn his limitations. God grant that he may do so before the final calamity comes. But then he makes a second mistake. Having tried to discover what he's not meant to know, he tries to do so with methods that are totally inadequate. But he'll never succeed. Listen to the answer given. Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. Now man thinks he can find this wisdom. He's confident he can. He can put his world in order. It was League of Nations a few years ago. It's United Nations now. It's something always this or that. A man's always going to... He can bring wisdom. He can solve the problem. You can't do it. No, no, it cannot be gotten in that way. Well, surely, says man, I've got the power. Uh, where shall I try? Well, now, then, where is this wisdom? Here's the question, where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. Very well, he says, if it's not in the land, let me try somewhere else. Where can I turn to? Ah, the depths. I'll turn to the sea. But the depth says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. Well, says man... Surely gold can buy it. Gold can buy anything. You can get on in the world if you've got plenty of gold. You can get on trained to the best clubs. You can meet the best people. You'll meet royalty probably if you've got enough money. Gold! Gold is going to do it. Listen, it cannot be gotten for gold. Neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. The golden crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of pearls, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. You go and offer all these things. Say, well, will you take this? No, says wisdom. I'm not to be bought. You'll never get me with your money, nor with all your wealth. It's not in the sea. It's not on land. It cannot be bought with money. Do you know not even, can it be found in the air, seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air? That's where man is turning now, isn't it? He's Discovered everything on the land as it has been down in the depths of the sea. Air, outer space, 
conquering the force of gravity. Now then, once we get up there, then we'll know how to live and we'll solve our problems. You won't. It is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close, even from the fowls of the air. It's not to be found in this world. Well, surely, says someone, as a man gets older, he gets wiser. No, he doesn't, says this book of Job. Days should speak, and the multitude of years should teach wisdom, but they don't. Old men can be utter fools. They go into a second child. Age isn't going to give it me. Well, what is going to give it me? I don't find it on land. I don't find it on the sea. I don't find it in the air. Money won't buy it. Age doesn't bring it. Is there anything that's ever heard of it? Is there anywhere where I can turn to find an answer to my question? And I'm told there's only one. Verse 22. Destruction and death say, We have heard the fame thereof with our ears, but no more. No living man can give it me. The treasures of the sea can't. The treasures of earth. The treasures of heaven. No, no, there's only one answer that I can get. Death and destruction, say. We have heard the fame thereof with our ears. What does this mean? Oh, I'll tell you what this means. The commentary on that verse is to be found in the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. The parable at the end of the chapter is about Dives, a rich man, and Lazarus, a poor man. And you're given the picture, you remember, of the rich man in Hades. And there he is, he'd lived sumptuously all his days, a great man in the world, probably regarded as a very wise man and important man. But he's dead, and he's in Hades, and he's in an agony. But you see, this is the thing that we are told about him. He wants to pass from where he is to where poor Lazarus is in the bosom of Abram. He can't, can't be done. Very well, then he said. If I am hopeless, if nothing can be done for me, do something about my brethren that are still left in that old world out of which I've just come. Send somebody to them. My brothers are still living as I was. I thought I knew. They think they know. You see, death and destruction had taught this man something that life and all his knowledge hadn't given him. Yes, death and destruction do say we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. They can't give it. But they'll tell you about it. They do know something about it. Gold won't help you. Silver won't. Rubies won't. The depths won't. The heights won't. Death and destruction say, yes, I can tell you. I know something about it. I've heard of it. They can't tell you about it. They can't save you. They can't give it to you. But with Lazarus, they can, but with Dives, they can tell you something about it and you'll feel, oh, that I could go back and tell people. Oh, that somebody could be sent back and give them this wisdom before it's too late. Go back and warn those brethren of mine. But that isn't enough, you see, that's all. No, no. Man has got to learn that he can never find it. Do what he will. And so he comes to the last point. Modern man will continue as he is and his world will continue as it is and become worse until man realizes that there is but one way to find it and to obtain it. And here is the answer. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil. 
is understanding. Wisdom is alone with God. Nowhere else. Whence then cometh wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? Seeing it is hid from all the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air. Here's the answer. God understandeth the way thereof. And he knoweth the place thereof. And then he goes on to give you his arguments as to why this is true. He did see it and declare it. He prepared it, yea, and searched it out. It's with God and with God alone. And it is the gift of God. This is what man has got to learn. To men, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. What does this mean? My dear friend, it's as simple as this. You've got to submit yourself utterly, entirely, and absolutely to God and his way. There's no wisdom apart from that. All else is but learning. All else is but knowledge and information. If you want wisdom, if you want understanding, there's only one place in the universe you can find it. Not in your libraries, not on the earth, not in the sea, not in the heavens. Money can't buy it. Thank God for this. It's the free gift of God. You can have it for nothing, without money and without price. You don't even need ability. You don't even need to be a great man. You can be an ignoramus, you can be an ignorant person, you can be a fool. But he'll give it to you as a free gift. The fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. What does this mean? Well, you see, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean a craven fear. It doesn't mean that you go cowering into a corner. It means that you just recognize that God is God and you bow before him. Now, here it is. Why is the world as it is? Well, because men who'd been made in the image of God and made perfectly and was put by God in a perfect world ceased to fear God. He stood up. He said he wanted to be a God. He listened to the devil and calamity came down upon him and it's continued ever since. What has man got to do? He's nothing to do but to reverse Genesis 3, what man did at the fall. Instead of standing up to God and saying, I demand this knowledge of the, I demand the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to know as much as God knows. Instead of saying that, you get down on your knees and you say, I'm a fool. I'm ignorant. I'm poor. I'm wretched. I'm blind. I'm unclean. I'm lost. I deserve nothing but eternal torment. Oh God. I realize it's all due to the arrogance and the pride of my intellect and my belief in myself. You humble yourself before God. That's the fear of the Lord. In other words, you go to God and you say, I don't know. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I am. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to die. I don't know how to face you in the judgment. I don't know what to say about the life I've lived. Very well, says God. You are now in the very place which I demand before I give you the gift of wisdom. Our Lord put that, you see, in these words, except he be converted and become as little children. Little children. The modern man with all his vast and gigantic knowledge, 
has just got to admit that he doesn't know what really matters. That whether he's a great man or not, it doesn't matter, he's a fool, he knows nothing. He's got to come down, he's got to be as a little child. He says, well, yes, the Bible's right, I obviously need to be born again. My thinking's all wrong. I've got to start from scratch, from nothing, from nowhere. In other words, you realize that all your learning and knowledge is utterly useless, and you submit yourself to this revelation. You believe this is God's word. And you believe it when he tells you that you are a sinner, that you are damned, and that you deserve hell, that you can never put yourself right. And you believe it when it goes on to say that in spite of that, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Believe in the virgin birth, the miracle of the incarnation. But I don't understand, you say. Don't try to. Become a little child. You haven't got wisdom. Receive it as a gift. Believe it as you are, because God says it. The fear of the Lord. Submission to his revelation, to his plan of salvation. But you say, I don't understand how Christ could receive my punishment. Don't try to understand it. Believe it then you'll soon begin to understand it and you'll rejoice in it as the greatest and the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. You submit yourself the fear of the Lord, submission to the Bible, to the revelation, to the truth concerning God's way of salvation in Christ, Christ being made the sin offering, my sins laid on him, God punishing them, delivering me, forgiving me freely, making me his child. This is wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Man acknowledging his ignorance and his utter inability and helplessness. And coming as a little child, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. You see, the moment you submit to this and believe it, you say, you ask for forgiveness, you acknowledge your sin and all your arrogance and failure. You say, I want to leave all that and all that it belongs to. I want to be your dutiful child. I want to live to your glory. And I want to spend my eternity in your holy presence. That's it. The fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil. That is understanding. And oh, my friend. If you but believe this, believe me, you'll begin to understand life. You'll understand yourself. You'll begin to live truly. You'll have contentment. You'll have satisfaction. You'll have peace. You'll have joy. You won't be afraid if they send all the bombs off together. You'll no longer be afraid of death. You'll no longer be afraid of the judgment. You'll even long at times to be in that glorious eternity that God is preparing for all his children. That's it. Very well, then. Are you prepared to say tonight with Horatius Bonner, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy dawn shall rise, and all thy days be bright. I came to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Have you the wisdom? You can have it as a gift freely from God at this very moment. If you but acknowledge your lack of it, your need of it. And take it and accept it as the free gift of God. 
in his way. Oh, go in for wisdom. The wisdom of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.